Hi, I'm Rick Steves. One thing I've learned after a lifetime of travel is that I've just scratched the surface of this planet's charms. It seems that every time I fly home from a trip, I have a longer list of places I still want to see than when I left. Today, we're heading for an exotic bit of the South Pacific with one of my favorite travel writers, David Stanley. Coming up on this edition of Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear from the author of the South Pacific Handbook on why Samoa is one of his favorite Pacific hideaways. And whether you're enjoying Samoa or Salamanca, and whether you're a man or a woman, you'll need to pack smartly, and that means lightly. We've got some practical tips to share with you on packing light from Joan Robinson. We're packing light, learning about the heart of Polynesia, and taking your calls and emails. It's all coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and we'd love you to give us a ring. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. That's 877-333-RICK. Or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. We've got Christy on the phone in Renton, Washington. Hi, Christy. Hello. How are you doing? I'm fine. I was wondering um, if I if I want to go traveling with a teenage boy who hasn't been beyond Canada, uh, where in Europe could I take him that would keep his interest and fill his days for like a two-week trip? Two-week trip. Well, you know, anywhere in Europe, as long as you find the things that a teenage boy would be interested in. I've traveled with a teenage boy for all the years my 18-year-old has been a teenager. And I've learned that he sees right through it, uh, Christy, whenever I try to con him into some site that he doesn't want to go to. (laughs) And we have to have kind of a a good, respectful working relationship where we do some of the stuff that mom and dad want to do, and we do stuff that the kids want to do. If that means the torture museum, or if that means uh, mountain biking, or if that means the mountain luge ride, boy, those things really, really are rewarding for a kid. And all of a sudden, they become enthusiastic about the trip in general. Uh What countries are you planning on going to? I haven't decided. I haven't decided if I should go to an English-speaking country, which that would be more uh, interesting for him, or I can speak German. Maybe he'd have fun listening to me. Yeah, you know, English-speaking is nice. I mean, when we were in Ireland, our kids, we'd go to pubs for dinner, and all of a sudden our kids have made friends, and they're playing pool with all these other people in the pub. And... uh, uh, it's just a, there's a wonderful sort of family feel when you're in Britain or Ireland, uh, when you go into the pubs or, or when you uh, go out hiking. And everybody, there's a sort of um, congeniality that, that uh, permeates the countryside when you're traveling. Uh, one thing that works well for me is uh, if you stay in youth hostels, you know, parents are welcome in youth hostels and the kids have a ready circle of friends, which is kind of nice. And mm-hmm. there's usually adults at youth hostels also. And uh, another trick that my wife Anne and I have found is a lot of times we want to have a dinner and we want to have a dinner, frankly, without our kids. And uh, we give, and the kids don't want a nice dinner. They just want a pizza and some pop. And uh, we give them money and we say, go have an adventure. Uh, find food on your own. And uh, especially when you have a family with a couple of kids that can pal around together, it's a nice break on both ends. I, I get pretty depressed when I spend a lot of money for kids that just want a hot dog and some pop, you know. <laughs> My wife and I want to spend 50 bucks for a nice dinner, and our kids uh, are just going to complain about the fancy food. So uh, we make a point to break away that way. Okay. Well, thank you for your help. Good luck on your trip, and let us know how it goes. Okay. You know, one thing very important is, uh, you know, parents are getting a little more money. I I think the kids deserve a little extra allowance uh, when they're going with the family, so they can and then be expected to monitor that money and learn how to use the euros and so on. And and another thing I've done is always try to encourage the kids to keep a journal. That becomes a a real uh, treasured souvenir afterwards. Great ideas. All right. Bye now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheryl on the line in Portland. Cheryl, thanks for your call. Hi, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? Good. What are your travel thoughts? Well, I was calling about um, one topic I've seen quite often on the graffiti wall, and it had to do with um, racism in Europe. And my particular question had to do with Spain, because for every comment that someone makes about one country, say Germany or Austria or England dealing with racism, you know, several people will reply saying they had a great time. But with Spain, it seemed to be pretty consistent across the board. Um, people uh, talking about having to deal with racism. And I actually, I guess, want to know um, how bad is it or 
Right. Cheryl's referring to the graffiti wall at our ricksteves.com website. We have a hundred different topics there of concern to travelers, some topics of concern to everybody, other topics of concern to, to certain groups of travelers. And, uh, of course, racism is, is, is an issue for a lot of travelers. Um, Cheryl, you've studied the graffiti wall. I haven't looked at it in a while. Is what you're saying is most people say racism's not a big deal in Europe except in Spain? Yeah, most people will say, you know, you'll get an uh, email from somebody who says they had problems, say, in Amsterdam right. or Germany, and then you will get responses from several people saying, oh, I just went to Amsterdam, no problem, I went to Germany, no problem. Right. But for Spain, it seemed to be pretty consistent across the board that people were dealing with, having to deal with, with racism. Is this racism in general or uh, against black people or a Muslim issue? Um, it was usually against black people. I'm African American myself, and right. Spain has been on my travel list, and so I was I was curious about yeah. what the situation actually is in Spain. You know, um, I, I don't. It doesn't surprise me um, really that on the streets of Spain there would be. Uh, this sort of problem. I, I think there's a lot of, Spain's having a lot of struggles and, uh, you know, a lot of people take things out uh, like the reason there's racism. Um, that's a good question. I don't know what to tell you except I, I really see uh, travelers, minority travelers as as uh, ambassadors and trailblazers in a lot of ways and I, I love to see different minorities around Europe and it's there's a reality over there. Europe has lots of racism. There's, there's uh, neo-Nazi groups. There's uh, all sorts of problems with Muslim communities. These days, there's different immigrant communities that can maintain their cultures and not be a melting pot because uh, communication is so easy back to their uh, homelands, you know. So they move into a, a society or a city and they take over one part of town and all of a sudden you've got issues between that neighborhood and the next neighborhood. Um, and uh, Europe is struggling with that. I, I think a lot of times you can romanticize Europe, but it's got the same problems America has uh, when it comes to dealing with, uh, you know, race relations. True. I don't. Do you feel like it's a, just a matter of um, respect and dignity, or is it an actual matter of uh, safety? Um, I think for me, if, especially if I'm traveling as a, a single female, it would be it would some of the safety issues for me also. Right. I, I think, I feel pretty strongly that it's a matter of dignity and respect. I don't think you are um, doing anything that would be reckless or dangerous to be uh, a black traveler in Spain or something like this. I think Spain is a dangerous place compared to other countries in a lot of ways from a theft, petty theft point of view. And if you're in the wrong neighborhood, you know, after dark and, and uh, uh, you know, you could get mugged or something like that in Spain more than in a lot of countries. So you want to you exercise uh, good care that way. Okay. But um, I would just, personally, I'd recommend go there, and uh, if it becomes, one beautiful thing about traveling without a lot of reservations is you can sort of roll with the punches. And if it's just flat out not enjoyable, then go to a country that is a little more um, civilized in that regard. I mean, I, I think I think France is, is, uh, is very comfortable with... Uh, with with African American travelers and so on. Yes, and I've been to France a couple of times, and I've had both. I have a great time both times. So you felt good in France. Yeah, that's definitely. great. And like I said, it was the yeah. issue. People had talked about dealing with the issue in France, but then you had it. Mm-hmm. Um, even more people say, "No, I went to France, had a great time, no problem." Yeah. But like I said, with Spain, it's going to be. Yeah. Consistent. You know, I don't know. I, you know, it's it's not. It's not fair and it's not good, but there's different uh, minority travelers that'll have more problems and some minority problems have less problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's one of our challenges when we travel is to uh, find a way to make it work. Definitely. So good luck and uh, let us know how your trip goes. Okay, thank you. Thanks for your call. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye. And we have Jeremy on the line in LaPorte, Indiana. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for your call. What are you thinking about? Um, Well, I'm planning a trip to Montpellier uh, to spend Bastille Day and see the Tour de France on the next day. Wow. And um, I've had bad experiences just randomly picking a hotel off of, you know, a travel travel website. Right. And just not very good of a hotel in kind of a crummy neighborhood and in a place like Montpellier at that time. You make a booking, you probably won't be able to find something else. Right. I'd imagine it'd just be packed with people coming out of the windows. Right. That's a busy time. Um, yeah. Well, one thing that you're, you're pretty smart to recognize is you can be deceived by web advertisements for hotels. Yeah. If they, you know, boy, 
they can they can make a place look really great. And if it's on the web, it's really just fishing for suckers in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. So you need to be leery about that. Try to well find out where it's located. Put it on a map, and then go to another site and see what that neighborhood's like. Um, okay. I I think that. Um, you know, you, you what you want is something handy to to your transportation and your sightseeing. A lot of places are cheaper because they're out in the in the sticks outside of town, and you spend better part of an hour getting there and back, yeah. which makes no sense at all. Now, when you're in when you're in these towns on Bastille Day, it can be really overwhelming. On the other hand, it can be just like America, small town America on the Fourth of July. Mm-hmm. I've had a number of uh, Bastille Days in France, and you don't have to have your Bastille Day celebrations in a big city. You could get some local advice and head out to a smaller town where everybody gathers at the soccer stadium, and they have a, a fun uh, fireworks uh, display and, uh, and a French Revolution kind of parade, and all the families are there with their um, soft drinks and, and the local equivalent of hot dogs. Okay. Uh, that's a lot of fun. And then I've, I've seen the uh, Grand Prix come through towns before, and what it does is it just stops traffic, and everybody gathers around, and, and these bikes come flying. The police make sure pedestrians who don't really know what's going on stay out of the way, and these bikes just come screaming through. And uh-huh. uh, as fast as it's uh, as it came, it's it's gone. It seems like. Okay. Thanks for the help. Good luck on your trip. Thanks. I'm Turaj. This is uh, Farsi for I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Man, Turaj hastam var Rick Steves safar mukram. We have some fun ways we'd like to encourage your participation in Travel with Rick Steves. When you go to our website at ricksteves.com, the radio section has a place you can submit one of three things we're looking for from our listeners. A hometown brag, an audio postcard, and traveler's haiku. Write up a paragraph or two about where you live. Record a minute or two of natural sound that makes an intriguing audio postcard. Or write us a haiku and send your submissions to radio at ricksteves.com. If what you send makes it on our show, we'll send you a gift certificate worth $20 to use in the travel store at ricksteves.com. Here are a few haiku we've already received from our traveling listeners. Rick, we've received quite a few interesting haiku from our listeners. We especially like those written by Amy Davis from Glen Ridge, New Jersey. Karen Scholl reads one of them for us now. First glimpse of Florence. Late day sun kisses Duomo. Memory trumps film. And this one comes to us from Ilana Long of Bellevue, Washington. In neon high tops, along cobbled roads I tread, in Caesar's footprints. So again, we're looking for your submissions. For all the details, see ricksteves.com. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. We're looking forward to hearing from you. There are two kinds of travelers, those who pack light and those who wished they pack light. Think about it. Have you ever met a traveler who, after five trips, brags, every year I pack heavier? Nope. With experience, you get serious about packing light. The freedom of packing light and some ideas on actually doing it with a woman who knows exactly how. Coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Boy, if you've, if you've ever been to Europe, if you've ever traveled, you know there's two kinds of travelers, those who pack light and those who wished they packed light. I really need to stress the importance of packing light, but I don't have a lot of credibility among women when it comes to packing light and respectable. So what I like to do is partner up with one of the women that work with me at Europe Through the Back Door, and I've got our packing expert with me today, Joan Robinson. She's been helping travelers learn the tricks of packing light and looking great now for over 10 years. Using Joan's skills of planning and organization, she can easily live 10 weeks out of one of our little travel bags while still being able to dress comfortably and appropriately. By developing her packing techniques since she was knee-high to a grasshopper, Joan has circled the globe while confidently being prepared for all occasions, whether enjoying the nightlife at the opera in Milan or trekking along the trails in Italy's Cinque Terre. We got Joan Robinson here to talk to us about packing light. Thanks for Hi, being Rick. here, Joan. I'm delighted. You look great. Thank you. You're packing light and looking good. Well, thank you. I feel good. You know, we give we give a lot of different classes here in Edmonds at Europe to the back door, and your class on packing smartly is, like always, the best attended. What to what do you attribute that? Well, I think that a lot of. Um, Sopranos, that would be your word, I think, are the overpackers. And so it's funny, though, in my class, we have half men, half women now, because I think the men are there to take notes for the women. But I would say for women mostly, we have so many accessories, I guess you would say, to pack that we need to cut down a bit on what we bring. So you'd say by nature, it's easier for men to pack simple. I think so. Okay. Men are used to wearing the same pants. Yeah, because I get example. a lot of questions. People say, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, you live out of that 9 by 22 by 14 inch, carry on the airplane size suitcase for two months. And I say, two weeks or two months, it's just exactly the same. But then they say, yeah, but I'm a woman and I need more. Well, my wife, Ann, packs just as light as me, and uh, she's taking your class. And, and I guess uh, I guess the point is women can pack womenly and lightly. Is that the idea? That's correct. I you think can actually pack light and um And look great. Yeah. Absolutely. I usually say if you don't wear it more than three times, don't bring it. Hmm. Is that practical? That's practical. Because you take a 21-day tour. Right. If a woman brought seven outfits, let's say, complete outfits, that would that would get you 21 days. And if you repeat it again, like I do, mm-hmm. and repeat it again, you've got two or three months. Well, that's right. Yeah. What are, then, the, are there some eurekas that people get out of your class that you think they really go, wow, this is really worth the time? I think with women, and this sounds really funny, but I think it's the scarves. I advocate bringing a lot of scarves to dress up an outfit. Women don't like to wear the same thing twice. But if you accessorize with a scarf, with a sweater... Something that'll uh, switch up your outfit just a hair or even a hat for a sunny day, then that gives you a totally different look. At a very small cost from a heaviness point of view. Exactly. I can fit eight scarves in a small little Ziploc baggie. And then you can wear the same sweater over and over, and it's not quite as dreadful. That's right. You know, I got (laughs) back from a winter trip, and for the first time in my life, I had a scarf with me, a wonderful scarf. I had Mm -hmm. a cashmere scarf, and it, I felt... Quite elegant, actually. Yes, it, nice. it feels great. And what's really... I felt European, which is yes, cool. Yes, yes. And, and that feeling is wonderful, too. I was over there in, high in the Alps, and it was, it was cold, and I had a couple of things I learned about packing in the winter. Heavy shoes, high tops. I bought the mm-hmm. same. I got my Echo uh, walking shoes. I've always had low tops. For the first time in my life, I got high tops of the same. They look the same from their cuff down. Sure. But they're high tops, and it kept my ankles warm. And I, I didn't know that was that big a deal. But, boy, I was comfy and toasty with those kind of like urban kind of walking boots, and a heavier pair of pants, and most importantly, my long wool overcoat. I I thought it was just a dressy thing because I was doing some TV filming and I needed to look good, but I was actually more toasty because of my heavy wool overcoat Mm -hmm. than with a ski coat. Yes. It's a beautiful thing. And again, I look like a a European out there in the Christmas markets and so on. And for women, you can bring opaque hose. And also they sell them in all the stores. What is that? Opaque hose. They're tights. Oh, I see. Tights that you'd wear under your outer Yes, underpants. What kind of material is best? I've heard people talk about capeline or something like Uh, that. Well, most everything is made out of kind of a nylon microfiber type deal. And where do you get those? Oh, you know, you can get that anywhere. So you wear your regular slacks and you have that underneath. Does that really help? Yes, it does. Okay, because remember when you're traveling in the winter, it's different than being in the winter here at at home because at home you're going from the car to the shop or the car to the house or the car to work. In Europe, you're outdoors for long stretches and you want to be comfortable. So 
I would dress from a warmth point of view almost like you're going skiing. Remember, you're going to be out for hours at a stretch. You need mittens. You need a hat. You need, what do you call the underclothes? Opaque oh. hose. Opaque. Opaque <laughs> You can't hose? see through them. Yes. Oh, that's an opaque hose. Excuse <laughs> yes. me. I'm learning here lots of stuff, and I'm glad I'm on the radio because I'm blushing. I Really? All right. <laughs> hey, um, what kind of shoes do you think? Uh, that's a big deal. One of the most popular topics in our website in the graffiti wall is shoes for travelers. Uh, what are your tips for mm-hmm. shoes? My tips for shoes, very simple. Go into a large department store. You're going to find 10 to 12 different types of walking shoes. What works for you is if your foot fits in the shoe, everyone has a different last, which is the way your foot fits in the shoe. If it is comfortable right off the bat, buy them. Hmm. Don't, uh, a, a lot of people make the mistake of trying on a shoe and say they'll stretch. Mm. You know, they'll, okay. I'll fix this on it or it that. Should fit. What, it what, should give me fit, a couple of exactly. brands that are good for sturdy travel mm-hmm. but good, look good looking in the cities, shoes yes. for women. I like Joseph Siebel and I like uh, Clark's. Um, a lot of women like Rockport's. I have not worn those, but I've worn the two. Uh-huh. I used I to wear mentioned. Rockport after Rockport after Rockport, mm-hmm. and now I'm into Echoes. Now, you've got to have a coat. Do you have any tips on uh, a smart coat to travel with? Yes, I like an all weather coat that's unlined. And that way I can virtually uh, roll it up, put it in a ball, uh, pack it away in my little Chavita bag that I bring. Unlined, me enabling you to layer better. That's if correct. It, if it's lined, you're sort of overcoming the layering advantage. Yes, because you can't do anything about being mm-hmm. overheated with a heavy coat. That's true. What about uh, Gore-Tex? Do you use Gore-Tex on a coat? I, you know, I haven't. Yeah. The I rain's haven't. not—I don't really pack for rain that much. I, no. bring, I bring an umbrella I do too. if I'm going in the winter. It's funny because there's a lot of microfiber out there and a lot of travel clothes, and some of them are pretty high-priced. But I bring cotton that's tightly woven and that's thin enough. Is that what microfiber is? No, microfiber is a man-made type of material, and there are two types of microfiber, microfiber polyester and microfiber cotton. The microfiber polyester does not wrinkle. The uh, microfiber cotton does breathe like the other, but it tends to wrinkle more. So I would look for a microfiber polyester, the tight woven cottons. I like rayon. I can roll them up. I roll clothes up military style. Hmm. Uh, Why do you do that? Well, they wrinkle less. So if you roll it up and mm-hmm. then you just rubber band it and put it in your bag? No rubber band. You, what you would do is say, for example, you have a shirt. You would pull in the two arms of the shirt and fold it in, and then you would roll up from tail to head. Okay. So it's like a little wiener roll. Yeah, right. And that actually lets it uh, stuff into the bag and come That's out right. unwrinkled. That's a good Gives idea. Gives you lots of room. And it, it also makes it more compact. That's right. Beautiful. That's what right. is the deal on how formal you need to dress in Europe? Well, I think that uh, anything – we were talking about going to the opera in Milan in your introduction. Anything goes nowadays, but I would be very uncomfortable if I was in a pair of jeans and a T-shirt. Oh, yeah. And so I would pick something that uh, would be maybe a step up from that. If I was a man, maybe khakis and a button down. Mm-hmm. If I was a woman, maybe I'd accessorize a skirt and a blouse. Do you find it's more formal in the winter than in the summer? I do, in some respects. I find that it's the tourist domain in the summer and it's a little more casual. That's right. And I've been very casual and very comfortable in the plays mm-hmm. in London in the, in the summer, for instance. But in the winter, if I go to a concert hall in Vienna in the yes. winter in a ski coat, I want to crawl under the table because it's just I'm too casual. Everybody else is dressed to the night. That's right. So I find in the winter it's a little more formal because that's when the local people retake the concert halls. Do men really need a sports coat when they're traveling out for a nice dinner and so on? As a rule, no, unless it's about a four- or five-star restaurant. Then you would need a sports coat. There are lots of companies that do sell sports coats that you can roll up and put in a suitcase and it comes out perfectly okay. I've never traveled with a sports coat, but I think, you know, I like having a sport coat when I'm dressing up here. It's something to consider. Now, do you take a beach towel? No, I don't. If I'm I'm going to the beach, I'm going to probably buy one or rent one because there are chairs that you can rent and they sometimes come with towels. Can you take your towel from the hotel? You need to ask a hotelier. Some of them are very strict about that, yes. To bring a robe? Oh, heavens no. <laughs> what, do you, what do you do for a nightwear? <laughs> for nightwear, well, I usually, I, I wear a nightgown. I'm more covered than a bathing suit or, you know, uh, most Europeans go down the hall in their underwear. So so it's casual. You're, you're, you're really way dressed if you're wearing pajamas. Right. You know, I feel a little bit uh, guilty to admit this, but I do not bring any first aid gear except for Band-Aid and a little disinfectant. What oh. do you bring? 
well, you know, I'm about on the same boat with you. So you read books and they say bring a thermometer, bring this. And I know, that, I know. I don't. That kind of thing is so readily available. Hotels have that. That's right. These days, a lot of people are concerned about looking like an American. Do you concern yourself with that? Well, you know, I don't wear a T-shirt that has an American flag on it unless I want to discuss politics. Seriously, if you want to discuss politics, you'd wear the flag. I would. Yeah, that would bring because out conversations. It would. It would draw a lot of attention. And it wouldn't Europeans, get hit, <laughs> but you'd get conversation. No, you'd get conversation. Europeans love to talk about politics, and they probably, I think they know more about ours sometimes than we know about ours. Well, they certainly have a different take on it or a different <laughs> they perspective. Do. They really do. But, I mean, just in general, mm -hmm. I think it's a good idea to dress in a way that sort of um, mimics the local sort of scene. And for me, that's kind of dark, understated colors. What do you yeah, think about that? Yeah, well, I think that even if you wore that and you walked in somewhere, they're going to know you're American. I do know Americans that wear their white tennis shoes, which is a dead giveaway, and shorts. Europeans, I've heard they tell Americans buy their shoes. Yes, that's, that's true. But, you know, in a way, I, if that's your most comfortable pair that you own is a white pair of tennis shoes, I say wear it. Yeah, because they're going to know we're Americans anyway. That's right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be an American over there. I that's mean, uh, right. But, you know, we're the ones that are just looking up at the buildings going, wow, that's old and that's big. And, that's wow, right. tell me about that. So yes. we're the sort of uh, wide-eyed uh, bumpkins in Europe, and uh, we don't need to disguise that. On the other hand, I just think it's just good style to not go with a – baseball cap and a bowling jacket and all this kind sure. of American sort of lettering and logos on our clothing. I like mm -hmm. to dress in low-key colors, especially in Eastern Europe. Uh, uh, and any if I want to be out on the streets, especially in a young crowd or something like that, black is so in, mm -hmm. it seems like, outside of the United States. People wear black. That's true. Under Being understated is a lot more comfortable, I would say. By the way, I'm talking with Joan Robinson, and she is the in-house expert here at Europe Through the Back Door on uh, packing smart, packing light, and specifically women packing smart and light. Joan teaches classes uh, for 10 years at Europe Through the Back Door, and today she's sharing with us her insights into packing smartly on your next international vacation. Joan, uh, what about laundering? If I'm gone for a month, I might do laundry twice. Right. I do the delicacies in the sink. You do them yourself? I do them myself. You do the little uh, dainties. The little dainties. Right. Yes. And then uh, a couple times a month you take the heavy stuff out to get it washed. That's correct. Yeah, it's a chore. I mean, I do my dainties, which are not quite as dainty as yours, <laughs> but I do them in the sink and it's, uh, you know, it's a headache. I would do it before a shower because I get all sweaty when That's I'm scrubbing right. in the sink. <laughs> but every room has a sink and you can wring it out tight and hang it up and the next morning it's almost dry. Or do it in the shower. Or do it in the shower, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot, of, a lot of tips on uh, on washing your clothes in the room. But, you know, if you got a lot of money, the hotel can do it. If you got more time than money, you can take it out and do a self-service laundry. You can drop it by a laundromat and generally pick it up at the end of your sightseeing day. Or you can just wash whatever's dirty out in the sink at, at night. If you're especially staying a couple nights in a hotel, wash that first night and things will be uh, ready to go after that. What about women and pants? There's a lot of people that think that it's uh, more polite and more sensitive to the culture for women to wear skirts or dresses. Oh, no. Women wear pants all over the world now. It's perfectly acceptable. So if you like wearing pants, wear pants. Yeah, I say whatever you wear in the States. If you're a pants woman and women, you'll understand this. Wear your pants. If you're not a skirt person, don't bring a skirt. You're not going to wear it. You won't be surrounded by women in skirts looking at you like you're some kind of a slut for wearing pants. No way. That's good. Now, if you're shopping, do you carry what you buy or do you ship it home? You know what? I tend to carry what I buy. Uh, shipping home now is getting quite costly. And depending on the part of the world you're shipping from, sometimes it may never make it home. So, so you're going to spend 40 bucks probably for a small box. To that's right. Home. And it'll you're take exactly a month. right. It'll, come, it'll arrive beaten up. That's right. Now, there's a lot of packing gimmicks and packing aids, packing cubes, bags, all this kind of stuff. Do, what are, your, are there any gadgets that are really worth uh, paying attention to these days? Yes, I love the cubes. Why? Because I can segregate all my toiletries. Um, women have quite a bit of toiletries, not only for the shower but for our face. And I can segregate those toiletries away from what I'm going to hang up in the shower maybe in a okay, toiletry so kit. A cube is a fabric kind of uh, zippered cube thing. Yes, it is. Different sizes. That's correct. Enabling you to compartmentalize in your small carry-on-the-airplane-sized bag. That's right. Any other aids? I've seen these uh, uh, vacuum bags that you can roll up and get rid of the wrinkles. You know, I could never roll up and flatten things enough to get them into my bag. And if I did, they came out wrinkled. I'm not a big proponent of that. Um, also, there are packing boards. I use a packing board. Do when you? I'm traveling around the United States, and it is excellent. Yes. I, I only stopped using it because 
I guess I had so many layers. Mm-hmm. I pack light, but I do have layers, and mm-hmm. it fills up the bag. Yeah. See, I bring four shirts, and I'm filming my TV shows in Europe, and I've got four mm-hmm. or five shirts. And this packing board, it's a stiff board with a little um, a mold that you, you fold your shirts around, and you pull out that little, right. little board, and it lays in there, and then you strap it all down, and you could throw that bag all over the place, and your shirts just look beautiful. Joan, I've got some questions from some of our listeners. They've emailed us. Amy from New York uh, said, reversible clothing. A reversible skirt-blouse combo got me through a three-week Italy tour, and it was dressy enough to wear in fancier restaurants when we wanted to splurge. The zip-off pants, uh, short combinations, are also key, but not only for lightweight packing, but also for happiness in touring in the fall and the spring when temperatures vary so much throughout the day. Oh, that's great. Guys, I want to tell you there are zip-off pants for you, too, not just for Amy. Okay, so you you got these long pants that zip off, and that's handy if you're going into a church and all of a sudden you've got to be more uh, modest. That's right, because knees are disrespectful. You have to wear longer pants. And she had a reversible skirt-blouse combo, and uh, that gave her uh, a little dressiness and a little more variety. That's perfect. How do these things work, these reversible skirts? Well, reversible skirts come in two colors generally on one skirt. So what it means is one day you're going to wear the skirt, let's say, inside out. And that might be taupe, a color taupe. Then the next day, you wear it the other way around, and it's black. So you have two skirts in one. Two skirts for the weight of one. That's right. And that really works well. That works really well. Vivian from Amherst writes, I love travel, love to dress attractively, but insist on traveling light. My mantra when packing is to remind myself that I'm the only person who will realize that I wear the same outfit all the time. If it looks good on Monday, it'll still look just as good on Friday. And she's absolutely right. What I would do is I would wear the same outfit that far apart, just like she mentioned, and wear something in between. Henry E. from Napa, California emailed us. He says he uses a pocket T-shirt. He uses the pocket for his debit card, passport, and large bills that he's just withdrawn from the machine. Small money goes in his pocket. No cumbersome money bag for him. I wear a shirt over my T-shirt, and it's all close to the chest. It's kind of novel. Yeah. So he's wearing a T-shirt with a pocket, and then he wears a shirt over it. I think I'd still go for the money belt. I'd still go for the money belt. That's a little scary. The money belt, it's important. (laughs) Remember, if there's two thieves in town, you're going to meet them. And when Joan and I are traveling, we've got all of our essential documents zipped up in a nylon money pouch tucked in like our shirt tail around our waist, under our pants, right? That's correct. Is that okay for women, too? Yes. I wear mine in the back. You do? Why? Well, women are built a little bit differently from men. Women don't like anything on their stomachs. It's a woman thing. Okay. And where we have a curve in the back is just the perfect little niche for that money belt. Ooh, sounds good. <laughs> and you don't get at it for every nickel, diamond, quarter. No, no way. That's your deep no. storage for That's select correct. deposits and withdrawals. You're operating out of a day spending money in your pocket. That's right. Joan, one thing I've learned is that you'll never meet anybody who after five trips brags every year I pack heavier. With experience... You pack smart and you pack light. And with your tips today, we are able to pack both light and smart. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure, Rick. I am a very stylish girl. It's got two main islands stranded in the center of the South Pacific. One, independent, the other, an American territory. Village life survives, and there's piles of starkest tuna. The many dimensions of Samoa coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. And right now we're traveling to the South Pacific, specifically the island of Samoa. I've got with me David Stanley, and David has spent much of the last three decades on the road. He's crossed six continents overland. He's visited 177 of the planet's 245 countries and territories. His travel guidebooks to South Pacific, Micronesia, Alaska, Eastern Europe, and Cuba opened up areas to budget travelers for the first time. For the first trip across the Pacific in 1978, Stanley bought the longest ticket ever issued in Canada by Pan American Airways. Since then, he's returned a number of times, visiting and revisiting the islands to update his guidebook, which is the standard guidebook to the South Pacific. Stanley has researched and written all seven editions of the Moon Handbook to the South Pacific. It's out in its new edition, and it's sold over a million copies. And David Stanley has uh, settled down on Vancouver Island in uh, the little town of Nanaimo. And uh, you must like uh, islands, David, but i got to ask you, if you're so into Fiji and Samoa and Tonga, what are you doing on Vancouver Island? Well, uh, actually, Rick, I like the climate here. It's, uh, you know, the hot weather is really good for a while, but I, this, 
this bracing climate and see, to see the uh, seasons change every year is good. And you know, but we don't have the, the the real cold of central North America. So for me, Nanaimo and Vancouver Island are just paradise. Well, it's the same for me. I'm in Seattle here, David, and it's I live in a terrarium and uh, lots of rain, lots of green, and uh, it's great to go to the hot zones. But it's also good to head back to our our other climates. Hey, uh, we're talking about Samoa. Give me just a quick sort of primer on Samoa, David. It's uh, the heart of Polynesia. Uh, uh, how accessible is it? How big is it? What's the, the general culture, the language, uh, the headaches for getting there as far as visas go and so on? Okay. Uh, there are no headaches in getting there for visas because you don't need a visa to go to either side of Samoa. Now, there actually, Samoa is two different jurisdictions. There's Samoa, which used to be called Western Samoa, until 1997, they changed it just to Samoa, and that's an independent country. It's been independent since 1962, member of the United Nations, etc. On the other side, you have American Samoa, which is a, an American territory and has been for over 100 years. It was originally uh, uh, taken by the U.S. for a naval base, but uh, that has had no importance since World War II, and now there's almost no uh, naval uh, military facilities there, but they have the big canneries that are uh, supplying all the canned tuna consumed in North America, like uh, Chicken of the Sea and Starkist. That all comes from Pango Pango American Samoa. And these two jurisdictions are only about 80 kilometers apart, or that's about 60 miles something. You can see one from the other, and yet they're totally different independent Samoa is more natural, more, um, should we say, primitive or traditional. The people live in small villages. Many of them live in thatched little houses called fallets, which have open sides, and they let down blinds at night. And on American Samoa, they also are the same, but they're more likely to live in houses built with stone walls, etc., and they are more Americanized. And the standard of living is also much different. Like um, American Samoa is much more of a uh, consumer monetized society, whereas in, in independent Samoa, it's more based on custom, tradition, and fe- people giving and loaning things to each other. It's quite a different atmosphere. So one more, the, the American Samoa would just be more um, what we would expect with American culture and the traditional Polynesian village life and chiefs and this sort of thing would survive on Western Samoa? Well, they survive on American Samoa too. That's the interesting thing. Huh. Because when, when the U.S. took over the island of Tutuila, which is the main island of American Samoa, in, in the year 1900, they made an agreement with the Samoan chiefs that they would protect their land rights. About 90% of the land of American Samoa is communally owned by Samoan families and clans, and that has kept the the country pure. It hasn't gone like Hawaii, where wow. uh, most of the land has been alienated to outsiders. So that's been honored to this day, 90% it of the land. It is still honored, and actually the the local American Samoa government is in full control, and these things could not be changed without their uh, permission. And and it will never will be because the Samoans are clever enough to realize that the key to their survival and the, of their culture and existence is based on land rights. Wow. Now, generally, if somebody wanted to do a Samoa trip, yep. um, they would fly from America to one of those and connect to the other quite easily? Right. You can actually fly to either one. There are direct flights from Hawaii to American Samoa, to Pango Pango American Samoa on Hawaiian Airlines. Okay. Now, if you want to fly to independent Samoa, then you f- can also fly from either Los Angeles or Honolulu straight to Apia, the capital of independent Samoa on airlines like Polynesian Airlines. That, that is the actual flag carrier of a Samoa. Now, I w- owned by Samoa. David, I would think most people, if they're going all that way, they'd want to probably check out both islands and they're exactly. easy to connect, uh, the easy little commuter planes between them. Actually, there are probably half dozen flights a day between the two Samoas. And listen, my recommendation to people is go to independent Samoa first. Right. Because it's much less expensive. Hmm. And it's, it's more 
really the South Seas paradise dream that we all are looking for, right? Right. Over there. But be sure to make the, if you, you know, if you can afford, like it's only $120 or something round trip for the round trip Hmm. fare back and forth. It isn't expensive. So if you can afford it, just go over for, you know, one or two nights Mm -hmm. and get a look at American Samoa. Right. Um, the landscape of these islands is fantastic. They're just like soaring volcanic islands. I, I, if, you, if you've seen the film um, South Pacific, um, you can visualize these things. In fact, when James Michener was writing his book, Tales of the South Pacific, during World War II, right. he actually was in Samoa. And he stayed in a hotel in Apia, the capital of Samoa, called Aggie Grace. Now, Aggie Gray is a really a historic figure. She, she actually only passed away about six or seven years ago, and there, her hotel is still the biggest and fanciest hotel in Apia today. Um, myself, I don't stay there when I go because it's, it's a little beyond my budget, but I definitely go there every Wednesday night because they have a, a huge island night show, which they call the Fia Fia, and For a very reasonable price, like $25, you get a full buffet of all the finest Samoan foods, and it's really a spectacular buffet. And then they have fire dancing around the swimming pool. And uh, the swimming pool, when I say swimming pool, I don't mean a normal pool. There's a little island with a coconut tree growing right in the middle of the pool. And uh, there's fire dancing, and then you have the the traditional Polynesian dancing there, and always one of the women of the, of the Gray family comes out and does the traditional Samoan dance, the Siva. And it's very fascinating uh, thing to, uh, to see. And I strongly recommend anybody who's there. They also do it on Friday and Saturday night, but Wednesday night is the big night. <laughs> so it, it sounds like Western Samoa would fulfill your exotic South Pacific dreams just about as well as Fiji. It might do so even more, you know, Rick, because uh, Fiji, Fiji is, is, is probably my favorite country in the whole South Pacific, and Fiji is much bigger than Samoa. Huh. Um, Fiji is maybe three or four times bigger. Fiji has maybe 15 times more large resorts. Okay. So you're going to hear a lot more about Fiji. Yeah, so West it, Samoa is your cute little alternative destination. Exactly. It's still very natural. There are only a few... Um, five-star hotels. Actually, Aggie Gray's son, uh, Alan, is building a huge resort right next to the international airport. Yeah. Personally, I wouldn't recommend it because, you know, you can stay in those kind of resorts on any of the neighbor islands of Hawaii as often as you like. If you're going to Samoa, go thatched roof. Hey, I'm talking with David Stanley. He is one of the guys that I've known for 20, 25 years as one of the, the original great independent travel writers. And David Stanley has written the massive thousand-page tome on South Pacific. This it must be the standard South Pacific guidebook. It's the Moon Handbook to South Pacific out in its new edition. And uh, it's great to have David Stanley with us. And we've got some callers on the line. Let's go to Megan in Dallas. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Oh, what's your thoughts on Samoa? I actually went through Samoa. I was supposed to just be there for a day for a business trip, and I was supposed to be on a flight from Samoa over to American Samoa, and due to some flight issues, we were never able to make it. So I got stuck there for about three days, but in the process, just completely fell in love with the island. I thought that it was absolutely amazing. So the people were so nice. There was so much stuff to do, and I was wondering um, if you had any suggestions over on the other island of Savai, like what kind of things there were to do over there. For clarity, we're t- you're talking West Samoa. That's the independent country. Independent Samoa, yes. And and that's and you want to make that your base and side trip to some little island nearby, uh, David. Savai, can- yeah. Savai. Actually, Savai. There's there's two main islands of independent Samoa. There's Upolu and Savai. And Savai is much bigger than Upolu, and it's like a huge volcanic island with a big, uh, it's sort of like the island Hawaii in, in Hawaii, but it's, it's, uh, you, the, the interior is inaccessible. A lot of people go there for ecotourism. Now, there's fantastic scuba diving around the island, there's, and there are several companies that uh, offer scuba diving, but, you know, the thing I like there is just the that's the 
probably the purest Samoan culture you will find anywhere in the world, and maybe the purest Polynesian culture you'll find anywhere in the world. Hmm. People still live in little villages. There really isn't any town or city there. It's just one village after another all the way around the island. There's a good paved road right around the island, and it takes a full day to go around. It's a, it's a sizable island. So, Megan, you spent three days stranded on the other island, the more mainstream island. Is that right? That's correct. And you said there was, like, endless things to do. What do you mean? You got stranded there for three days, and it was your best unplanned destination ever? Uh, How can that be? Ever. There was just such a great um, variety of things to do. We went snorkeling. It was wonderful. The beaches were great. Uh, We went to a place that they called the Sliding Rocks, which was some waterfalls that were these rocks that you could actually slide down. Hmm. Um, there are waterfalls, many places where we could um, just kind of stop for a little while and go swimming and um, really like Coconut Beach Club, which was kind of on the other side of the island, but kind of spent a day there just kind of hanging out and so many fun things to do. I would go back there in a heartbeat. How were the prices for you, Megan? Did it seem expensive? No, you know, it was very reasonable. I thought mm-hmm. that the food was very reasonable, hotel was reasonable, and one of the things that probably stood out the most was just the people. Yeah. So everything was very clean. It was obviously that people took a lot of pride in their country, and just everyone that we talked to was so nice, so willing to help, just really talk, wanted to know what we were doing there. You know, I just felt like we kind of had like a little family away from home. Megan, it sounds like you're from the Samoan Tourist Board. I know. <laughs> I, I'm a firm believer in going over there. It's one right. of those places you don't hear about very often, but it's just a gem. This is great. Thanks for your call, Megan. You're welcome. We have David on the line in Oakland, California, and you've had some experience in Samoa? Well, I was actually a volunteer teacher for two years in American Samoa. Pango Pango? uh, Actually, yeah, outside of Pango Pango in a town called Leone. Pango Pango is the big city then of American Samoa? Well, it's called a big city. The the major town. (laughs) Major town, yes. That's kind of the, that is the capital of American Samoa. Now, David said that this is the center for Starkist, Tuna, and Chicken of the Sea and all that. Did it feel? It's true. And when you, we used to go to a uh, bar, because that was back in my post-college days, and we would, uh, on our off time, go to this bar called Rosie's, and we'd have to go by the canneries and we'd hold our breath. Why? Um, smell was so bad. Is that right? Now, yeah. did, did the... That's kind of the previous caller was talking a little bit about Western Samoa and American Samoa. And American Samoa is a, Samoa is a little dirtier. Um, uh, I can tell you the good and the bad of American Samoa. And I know that, like, the um, diapers, sometimes disposable diapers would be thrown when you'd be snorkeling. You'd, you'd come upon a batch of disposable diapers. Oh, no. Kind of a scary uh, thing there. But at the same time, the harbor was incredibly beautiful, and the mountains were incredibly beautiful, and it was just the sunset, the whole experience of it was pretty amazing. And the culture, there's the Fa Samoan way, which is just to sit around and hang out. And people do, when you're in America, you're always just, there's so much going on. And when you're in Samoa, just sitting around and relaxing. Now, now, did Pango Pango seem like a, a company town to you with uh, a lot of people uh, in little shanty accommodations to work in the factory or anything like that? No, not really, not at all. I mean, it was very, it's just a, it's, you know, it's, it's still kind of very Samoan, and people have the cement, more cement houses. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it's, it's, you know, Western, we took a lot of trips to Western Samoa, and Western Samoa was much more very traditional. And you could go, we used to go across the other side, and I can't remember the name of the villages, but we'd go mm-hmm. the other side of Western Samoa the, and stay in the Fales, the little huts, and just, you know, it was very cheap, and you'd just go out snorkeling, and it was just, it was a great experience. So that's so. the real travel experience is over in the Western Samoa, the independent Samoa. Yes. Um, there's two, a small island, maybe David knows, the Ofu. And uh, Ofu is off of uh, American Samoa, and that is a gem of a place yes. to go. And this, not a lot of Samoans live there because it's supposed to be haunted. But there's oh. a couple that rents, and I don't know if they're still running a motel there that's right off the airstrip. It's and still there. I, w- I stayed there myself for a few days. It's, it's just the way you left it. It's, it is the best, and they grow corn actually there at the top of one of the hills, and they have... They go out and get fresh fish, and yep. so you have, like, raw fish. And it's just a, it's a great place. Was that a national park when you were there? Um, I, I don't think it was. I can't it remember. Is, it is now. The whole, the whole coastline along there bes- beside the airstrip on, on yeah. uh, Ofu is, all, is now American Samoa National Park. Oh, wow. Did you climb up to the TV tower when you were there? I did. That's part of the park now. Yeah, I did not know that. That was one. Yeah, I actually spent the night on the top of the TV tower. Oh, did one you night really? With a friend of mine. It was did, pretty did crazy. Did you go experience. down the other side to Vatia? Yeah. 
Yeah, but rough going, huh? Yeah, it was rough going. It took us a while to get up and down. Yeah. One of the other things I wanted to recommend is that if the Simones are incredible singers. And yes. if you have a chance to go to a church um, and listen to them sing, I highly recommend it because they're just beautiful the way. You get a group of them together, and they love to sing and, and sing for people. And they're just they're amazing singers. That's a good insider tip. Hey, David, thanks very much for your call. No problem. Thank you, Rick. You bet. Bye. David Stanley, author of The Moon Handbook to the South Pacific, and that includes a huge chapter on Samoa, both American Samoa and independent West Samoa. Thank you very much for enlightening us on this fascinating uh, little corner of the South Pacific. Well, thank you, Rick. And if anyone wants to learn more, they just can go to my website, southpacific.org, O-R-G, and it's all there. And you can even contact me through the Contact Us button at the bottom of the page. Great. So southpacific.org to get in touch with David Stanley, author of The Moon Handbook to South Pacific. Uh, We've got the details at our website, ricksteves.com. And we'll be talking to David Stanley again soon because we've just covered one small little chunk of a fascinating corner of our world, the South Pacific. Thanks again, David. Okay. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. You'll find more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com, where you can look up information on today's program and others in this series. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of Travel with Rick Steves. That's where you can also send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds of Fame department and sign up for our Radio Waves email updates. Details are at ricksteves.com. Some of the people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communication support from Sonia Grosset and Robin Goddard, technical support from Dan Suter and Matt Iglesias, and additional assistance from Reagan Sewell and Pat O'Connor. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.